0: Pray for me this morning that the Lord would speak to your heart and um, that the word of the Lord would be a help to you today. Again, Matthew chapter 25, we'll begin our reading in verse 13. Um, As you can tell, you're getting to the end of the gospel, so you know what's about to happen, right? The very next chapter, we're going to begin reading and Jesus is going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and his passion is going to begin. And so, this is one of the last... Messages, I guess we could say that Jesus is going to speak or preach. It begins in chapter twenty-four, and the onset of it is a couple of questions that the apostles have for Jesus, and so he's trying to answer these questions. Two of them: um, one is about the Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, and the other one is about um, the end of time. And so, we're not going to necessarily focus on this. Point, though we'll, we'll maybe mention it. what Jesus is in the midst of doing here is over and over he's giving analogies. And the purpose of those analogies is singular in my opinion, and that he's, he's trying to say, the Lord's return will be unexpected. And every analogy, there's certain things that we can learn in addition within the analogy. but if you'll notice, notice that every one is meant to emphasize, suddenly he comes. Suddenly he's here. And so this parable or story that we're going to read, we're going to look at some of the additional purposes of this parable, but keeping in mind that the primary purpose he's using it is to say, suddenly he's going to come. But there are still some things that we can learn from this parable that I would say are important, and we hope the Lord will bring that out to you today. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in our reading in verse 13. Difficult to know where to cut this off because these things flow together. And so I just chose verse 30. I was hesitant to do it, but there's no way that I can keep on going and keep it under, you know, four or five hours. So um, Matthew 25, beginning in verse 13, it says this. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents." likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more." that he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed, And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed." Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury, or with interest, as all usury means. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'll conclude Our uh, reading text this morning, sorry if I made some mistakes there or read a couple of those verses a little awkwardly this morning. Um, The title of our message, although we're going to walk through this parable, uh, at least the first part of it, step by step here, is settling your account with joy. Settling your account with joy. There can be a habit of reading a story like this. And I think all of us can visualize this pretty easily. Um, and dwelling upon the last man. And in, as the Lord would impress, it would be wise of us to do that. Um, however, it's not only important to read the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, to study the Word of God, but also to appropriately in our hearts emphasize the Word of God. Or in other words, if we overemphasize certain truths and neglect others, then our minds have a distorted view of the truth. The facts may be right, but some facts may loom larger than other facts. And I think this is in large part true often because we hear about the return of the Lord most often in connection with two groups of people. One, the most prominent, is that God is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that emphasis is made in the Scriptures over and over. And the bottom line of that text and many others like it is this, and it's a warning that we'll echo this morning. If you do not know God, our songs that we sung this morning spoke, especially the second half of them, about the moment of conversion. You were not born a Christian. You did not casually become a Christian. You've not always been a Christian. There's a time and a place where God saves a person. And at that moment, there is an unspeakable transformation which takes place inside the individual that every part of their being is aware of that he changes them and the side effects of that change are forever noticeable in the person's heart and life. And so it's important for us to emphasize that before anybody will enter into heaven, they must have an experience with God and if they have not had an experience with God, it ought to be a fearful thing to consider God's return or death. And the unexpected nature of both of those, death and his return, ought to compel action, ought to compel the lost sinner to seek God. There's another group of people that's often targeted with this message, and that is those who have been saved and are negligent of the calling that God has for every Christian. The Bible speaks more often about the calling ...of a Christian than it does the calling of a minister. That should be notable to us. We are called to lay down our lives in service to God and His kingdom. And everything that we have, both material and non-material, are God's and ought to be permanently surrendered with joy. Lord, this is all yours. And I will happily employ it where you command me to. And when people are not doing that, very often and justifiably, there are warnings that come forth that say, Who knows when the Lord is going to return? Get your your home in order. Get your life in order. Serve God with diligence that you might give an account. That when you give an account, you are ready to do so. And we may touch on a few of those things this morning. But I also want to talk about a third group of people. One that I feel like I was blessed to be numbered with this week. Those which take what God has given them and does what he says with it. Now, I want to say this as a disclaimer to this message None of us will perfectly employ what God has given us stewardship over. Nobody has the right or prerogative to go and boast about the way that they use God's things. Because in the end, somebody who is truly being used of God... The foremost knowledge that they have is that it is by God's wisdom and grace alone that they are able to even steward what he has given them. Or in other words, if I have money that is God's and he says to give it, I don't know where to give it unless he shows me how to give it, where to give it, when to give it, why to give it, and to whom to give it. So even if I have it, I don't know what to do with it. And that truth in my own heart grows more and more the older I get. How helpless that I truly am to know what to do of anything to anyone in the work of the Lord. Because I don't. And so this morning as I begin to talk about these things, I don't want you to think that as the person is settling, that they, they know along the way, well, I'm doing the right thing. And I can't wait to, to get there and rejoice. That's not the way it works. There is a humility in the heart of every true servant of God that, Lord, I'm I'm trying the best that I can, and I know that I'm probably failing, but please help me in this attempt to steward. And very often when you do, you don't even know when you're succeeding. You You hope that you're doing the right thing. And sometimes God can give you assurance of that. But I want to take this truth, and I want to point some things out to it. So we know that there's this man, and he is ridiculously wealthy. I mean incredibly wealthy. So let's not, as we read this, get a sense, which I think often happens. So you say, one man is given five talents. A talent is a, 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 a measure of money, right? So you think, five, three, one. And our mind might go and say, well, that, that guy that only got one poor guy, he only got one talent. Well, we got to ask the question, how much is a talent worth? And what you'll come to realize is, wow, he was given one talent. You see, there's a range. That's all we can find for what a talent is. And so I'm sure if if you've looked in different places, no matter where you look in the exact measurement you come up with, it was a lot of money. A talent was approximately... 15 to 20 years worth of salary, okay? So let's just take somebody in the United States that has a low salary, $25,000 a year. I think we would all say, our federal government says that is poverty. And we added that across the lowest number that you can research for what a talent is, and that's 15 years worth of wages, We're getting close to $400,000. Is what the man with the smallest talent was given. The man with five, two million. So we know that the man who has all of these goods is distributing those to those servants. And even if you get the least, you're getting a lot. And so the man comes, and as a good master would do, as a man who is looking to invest wisely, he does not spread it out equally. And so you might ask the question, well, then how does he determine who to give five to, who to give three to, and who to give one to? Well, the text tells us. He says this. Look at verse 15. And unto one he gave five counts, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his ability. So God, I'll step out of the analogy here for a moment and say this. So I want you to think about yourself for a moment. And some of you are immensely talented and gifted and blessed, not with just material wealth, but skill and knowledge and ability abundantly. And some, less. And yet, the first point I want to make this morning is... If we look to the man with five talents and the man with three talents and we say, you know what? I was not given as much as him or him, we might be compelled to think that the one talent we have been given is so insignificant it is not worthy to steward to the best of our ability. But when we come to learn that in modern terms that that one talent is still immensely valuable both to, uh, in general terms, to anyone looking upon it or also to the one who entrusted it to that servant, then you would know even if you're given less talent than every other person that you know what God has given you is valuable God himself entrusted you, please hear this this morning entrusted you with you Amen. I can remember, well, I grew up in a family and my, uh, my two sisters are very good singers and uh, I was the odd one out I couldn't really sing very well so we would try to form a trio, and I could tell really quickly I was the weak link. So it became a duo, gladly. Right? One of the things that compelled me to learn to play the piano was why I, I want to do something, and I can remember envying them. Truly, I envied my sisters and their ability to sing. I had a, a roommate, and uh, when I was in college, and he was a wonderful singer. And he would just crack us up because he'd be at the gas station at midnight. and He'd just start singing real loud. And people would look around and just, whoa, man, you are really good. And I can remember having the prideful thoughts. If I had a voice like that, I would do the same. I'd go everywhere and I'd sing. And at the root of that thought was pride. I tell you that silly story because there's a truth in it, and that is I did not have the ability to be gifted with a good voice. Do you understand what I'm saying? I did not have the capacity to be entrusted with that gift. Now you may say, well, that's just, okay, why is that a big deal? Well, it may not be to you, but think about how much your life could be altered with certain gifts that you're unable to handle. You see, God is our wise master. And there may be some of you that have said, you know what? This person just by chance struck gold. They put money in investment. They bought some property. They did something at a time when things were low. And I've made many better decisions than them. It just so happened that they unknowingly struck gold. Don't think that way. God entrusts to each person according to their ability. There are some people that couldn't handle many children, perhaps. And so God entrusts them with one. There are some people that could not handle a million dollars. There are some people that could not be trusted with a lucid mind that can remember things logical mind that can analyze things, talent like singing or talent and skills that are beyond measure, basketball skills. Some of us could not be entrusted with those things because God knows that it would be a stumbling block for the remainder of our lives, both for ourselves and for others, and that we would not steward it well. And so God's God's grace is found in his restraint and his blessings. Did you hear that? Don't we often think of God's blessings as giving? What if God's greatest blessing to you was his restraining? And he said, I want to give to you, but I know that you cannot handle it. And so I will not give to you. Here's a prayer to pray to the Lord. Lord, give me grace to accept what you give me, but only give what you can help me to steward. I don't want a dollar more. I don't don't want it. Like, hear me today. Pray, Lord, I don't want it. I don't. If I do not have the capacity to handle it, please take it from me. Please, like Paul, give me a thorn in the flesh that it might prohibit me from abusing what you have given me to steward. Now, in real real time, isn't it disappointing when you don't get what you want? I mean, this sounds all cute and spiritual here. But in real time, it's met with great disappointment. Great covetousness, great bitterness towards God and towards other people. Why, Lord, do they get and I don't? We, as the servants, you know, the the biblical true word, it didn't in the King James, it didn't, it's slave. That's what we are, we're the slave. And so, does the slave have the right to dictate to the one who knows him, even more so in our case, that created us, that knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts? Do we have the right to dictate to that one, God, you made a mistake here in what you withheld from me? Certainly, Do we have the right to look upon another man and say, Lord, he doesn't deserve five talents? Let me say with no hesitation, you do not have the right to make that judgment call at all. I don't have the right to make a judgment call upon what God has given me to steward. I just pray that I'll sufficiently do it. Leave that to God. Leave the Lord to do those things as he sees fit. This man... He gave to every man according to his ability. Let me go to the next part. 16, verses 16 through 18 here. Because we see immediately their reactions to it. Okay, so the, the man gives them their abilities and then he leaves. And notice, and I don't know necessarily the significance of this, but at the end of verse 15 he says, And straightway took his journey. Immediately he went. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. So, a 100% return is a pretty good return. The same in the next case. And likewise, he that received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Now, I'll comment on these here in just a moment when we get to the, what they did and why they did it here when we get to the reaction of the master to them. Notice verse 19, though. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. Now, in your experience, I think, in our experience as human beings, verse 19 is the most difficult thing to always keep in the forefront of our minds. Notice what it says. After a long time. There are times, there are gaps between things that last so long that it seems as though whatever we're expecting is never going to happen. Like I've known people before that, um, you know, were in, at first in their early 20s and they were desirous to get married and to start a family. And they couldn't find the right person and time passed and time passed and they got into their mid-20s and their late 20s then their, their early 30s. And it, that gap... The longer that it went, the more that their mind convinced them there's never a day coming. It's just false. It's just never going to happen. There may be things the Lord has spoken to your heart of things that will come to pass. And there's a gap that occurs. No different than what we preach and we say and what has been said for 2,000 years now. The Lord is coming back. And yet we pull out our history books and reread that for hundreds and hundreds of years, even Paul the Apostle thought the Lord was coming back during his lifetime. And many of those afterward in every generation that has risen and has gone has thought, Lord, maybe it's now. And we look at the state of the world just like our forefathers have. And we look at the wickedness and the evil. And we all say, certainly the Lord will not allow time to go on much further. And yet whenever the world was sometimes at its worst, seven, 800 years ago, 1,000, a thousand years ago, they were saying, it's so bad, certainly the end is near. And now, a thousand years later, here we are now. And we see all of this time pass. And you age. And you start as a young man and you end as an old man. And you're saying, you know, I thought 50 years ago when the world was going downhill, it was all going to be over. And that processing in our minds plants a seed of deceit where we then subconsciously, not statedly, but by the way that we begin to steward what God has given us, we are under the illusion He is never going to call us to account. Let me state very clearly, that is completely an illusion. Everything we have been given, every moment of time that we have been given we are accountable for. This man was gone a long time, but he came back. And he came back with the purpose, says in the King James, reckoneth with them, or settling their account. And wouldn't you do that? You go on a trip, you hand over, I don't know, somewhere between three and four million dollars, to investors, don't you think within the first week that you got back, if you completely handed over three or four million dollars, had no communication with them, that probably at some point in the first week, first two days, first 24 hours, you would say, Okay, I need to know where my money's at. What did you do? That'll be the judgment. God is going to settle all of our accounts. You will not be able to look at me. You will not be able to look at somebody else and take any false consolation as to how you steward the money in comparison to anybody. And that's one thing I love about the Lord. It is not a moving standard. God has a set standard and that is His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the standard. Not me, not you, not your family, not your parents. God has given you what He has given you and expects What he knows, with his help, you are able to steward. And so let's look at the response here. Verse 20 says this, And so he that has received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou hast delivered unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. Now I want us to think for a moment, because I went back and began to read this in the Greek. And I think, and you can go and, and, and you can read it for yourself and go get a different version or go look at it. I think there is a exclamation from this man. So let's think about it like this. Somebody has given you and you with their money. And you went and you invested it. And you doubled it. And they haven't come back yet. Wouldn't you be eager for them to come back? I would be when you do a job and your boss leaves you alone for weeks to work on the project. And not only have you done a good job, then you discovered something else that makes it a really good job. Like, you know that his expectations are here and you've reached here and you're going to blow him away. Aren't you waiting until the hour where he walks in and says, okay, show me how that project is coming. And you're saying, okay, yeah, come look. I'm really excited. I want you to come and see what I've done. And don't you sense in the man who has been stewarded with five and the man who's given two talents that he says, uh, uh, when they come in, he says, uh, uh, look in verse uh, 20, he says this, you gave me five talents, and notice the word behold. Look, that's what he's saying. That's what behold means. He says, okay, boss, you gave me five talents, but look, look what I did. I took those five talents and I got five more. Now let's break down for a moment how he did it. Because it tells us in a couple of verses back. And this is the, this is very often the disconnect in the Christian life right here. Okay? Verse 16. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. I want to point out some, two things about verse 16. The man got the five talents And immediately he went and took risks. Now, for a variety of reasons, perhaps some nature, perhaps some nurture, there are some people that are much more cautious, and there are some people which are much greater risk takers. Let me say this in the work of the Lord, you have to take risks, you have to take risks. You ever been led to talk to somebody about the Lord you didn't know how they were going to take it? Or you even expected them to rebuff you. You expected to get in. And so you're afraid and you're hesitant and you're scared. Listen, friend, if the Lord's telling you to do it, you've got to take the risk. You ever help somebody out and you didn't know if they were deserving of it? You know, in our culture today, very often what happens is just we, we want to put all people in one box. Right? So we see the man with the sign on the street. We just reason, well, they're all frauds, so I don't have to make the choice to help them or not. We don't have the luxury to do that. Right? We need to ask the Lord, because wouldn't the, rather the, the desire of our heart be, Lord, if you can help me to exercise Christian charity, to help my fellow man, that in the end, by giving them natural bread, it might lead to the opportunity of giving them spiritual manna from heaven. But you have to take a risk. You have to step out and say, you know what? Maybe they will take advantage of me. Maybe they are lying. I don't know. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me compassion. Let your spirit guide me to help as you see fit. This man goes out and he takes risks. Well, many of our CPAs here can tell you in every risk that you take, you're not going to get a return. That's the nature of a risk. There are times which, and we can be idealistic at times to think, every time I feel like the Lord wants me to talk to somebody, it has to inevitably lead to a good conclusion. It doesn't happen that way. I had a friend in high school just contact me this week. Haven't talked to him, I think, in 17 years. Sent me a very short Facebook message. Here's what he said. I talked to him one time about the Lord when I was in high school. Never talked about it again. Haven't talked to him in 17 years. Sent me a message this week. Very short. hope you're doing well. I have a master's degree. I'm rich. And Jesus had nothing to do with it. That was it. I'm not downtrodden, I'm not heartbroken. I don't think that because from the man's vantage point, it seems like, well, maybe I did something wrong there. Right? You see, the nature of a risk is it doesn't always turn out the way you want it to, but it doesn't mean that God is still not in it. What if God wants you to lose on that risk? What if there's some things you need to learn about the world and yourself that God is going to teach you by having you lose in the risk? Take the risk. Speak to the person. Give the money. Extend the help. Make the phone call. Ask in the person who's downtrodden that you perceive, I want to make sure you're okay. Very often people today in the Christian world are just so inhibited by fear. But notice in this parable that that is one of the primary purpose of the parable is that God condemns making spiritual decisions with what we've been given the right to steward through fear. That's what the last man was condemned for. I remember, oh, many of you probably saw this game. I don't like bringing sports into, into a, church, haven't watched a full basketball game in I don't know how long, 15 years. Watched a part of a basketball game the other day. Number one seed got beat by number 16 seed. Right? All over the game, one team was playing not to lose. That was it. And guess what? They lost. And when Christian people play not to lose, they lose. Play or worship, or function as a church in order not to die. Well, if you're thinking that you're going to do these things so that you don't die, you're already dead. You serve God to live. And inherent is that as risk. And when you lose, you don't go back and say, you see, we never should have done that in the first place. You don't do that. You just know that's the nature of it. Because of our finiteness, that's the way it is. This man, he goes out. I want to point out something else about that text in verse 16. So he was taking and he was risking and he was capitalizing on his master's goods so that his master could yield a return. Okay? If he's doing that, that means he could not simultaneously focus on his returns. Right. And there is a clarity in the scriptures that we need to seek first the kingdom of God and let God take care of the other things. We don't need to be foolish. We don't need, and you can go to an extreme with what I just said and convince yourself that what I'm saying is not true. But listen, everything about our life ought to be focused on God and His work. And you will suffer loss if you serve God. And if you're not, you've got to ask yourself the question are you really serving God? Because time, money. Now, I don't, I don't talk about money from the pulpit very often, but listen, you lose a lot of money serving God. You do, there's just no other way around it. You give to people who have need. And I'm so thankful that God throughout my life has allowed me to be on the giving end because it's not as joyful on the receiving end. Receiving comes from necessity. Giving comes from God's blessings, doesn't it? It costs to serve the Lord. And very often it costs beyond comfort to serve the Lord. I'm not talking about giving money to this church. I'm talking about giving to the Lord and the way he compels you to. This man had to suffer loss, personal loss. So did the man with two. But notice, notice the response of the master. Verse 21. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place. I mean... It'll be so wonderful. We can't we can't even fathom how wonderful heaven's gonna be. If I could ever get to heaven and God gave me two words, well done. I had given you these things. He didn't say perfect. He ain't gonna say that to anybody. He said it to one man. He's not going to say perfect to everyone. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I love that he includes faithful in that. Because to really serve the Lord, it takes a great degree of faithfulness. It's easy to serve Him on the mountains, right? We sing songs about that. But to remain faithful when you don't feel anything, when God's voice is silent, when you're in a quandary and confused, to just be faithful. And then, it seems as though the Lord here, not our Lord, but the Lord as they call it here in the King James, the Master, blessings were awaiting this man. He said this, enter in to the joy of the Lord. So here's the way I look at it. Listen, there was joy in the journey, and there was joy in the end. The joy in the journey was his anticipation that the master was coming back and he could show him what he had done with the things the master had given him. So the process had journey, it had work, a lot of work, it had risk, it had fear. All of those things were present just like they are in our lives. But in the end, there was a joy that the Lord was coming back to get what was his and that he had tried to do the best he can to invest it wisely and by God's grace had a return. And so there was joy in the anticipation. The Lord is coming back. And listen, Paul had a joy looking forward to his departure. And a Christian who completely has surrendered their life and has given themselves to the work of God as they step closer and closer to heaven. Listen, there's not a fear there. There's a joyful anticipation. I'm ready to go. I am ready to go and meet the master because I have tried in my weak way to to steward this as he has given it to me. And so there's joy in the journey. But then God has a prepared joy and the result. I don't know what that is, but I'll just say one comment. It'll be well worth it. It'll be well worth. People think today, you know, look what I did for the Lord. Look what I had to give up. Look what I had to sacrifice. It's not even the value of dung, is what the Philippian writer said. He says, I have lost, suffered the loss of all things, and count it but dung, rubble, that I might win Christ. So you say, you know that man, he gave a million dollars, he gave a billion dollars to the cause of the Lord. Wow, what sacrifice. In the scheme of eternity, it was worth a penny compared to the joy that awaits. I'm going to begin to close. Here's what he says. says the same thing to the two, the man with the two. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He's going to make him ruler over many things. Verse 24 and 25, and we're going to begin to close. Then he gets to the man with one. Now notice, <laughs> this, is, this is so right. This is so indicative of reality here. It makes me laugh. So he comes to the one with five, and the one with five says, Lord, you gave me five. Look! He comes to the two. He says, Lord, you gave me two. Look! The one, he says, Well, hold on a second. I got some explaining to do up front. I knew that you were a hard man. I knew... All excuses, right? Doesn't that sound like a child? I mean, this plays out in my house every week, 10 times a week, right? Go clean your room. I give you 15 minutes. We literally put a timer on. They've got seven things to pick up. I go up there and six things are still on the floor. And, of course, well, let me explain. You have a basketball in your hand and the goal is on the floor. What are you talking about? You've got to explain, right? There's always a reason not to serve the Lord. Always. There's always a reason that nobody could possibly understand as to why you can't do X, Y, or Z. And listen, if God is not compelling you to do it, then don't. But if he is, do it. Take the risk. Serve the Lord. Give up the treasures you're clinging to. This man was motivated by fear and a misunderstanding of the hardness of the man he was serving. He was doing what he did not to make a mistake. And listen, if I waited to serve the Lord until I felt like I would not make a mistake, I would never preach again. There are times I go back and I think, oh my goodness, I just made such a mess. Oh my goodness. There are times where I hear somebody else preach on a text I preached on. I thought I was wrong, way wrong. Not even close, And yet, I have had to learn, you know, it's not about me. I'm going to make mistakes. And maybe you do know more than I do about that. And maybe there is something I'm mistaken about. And maybe all along the way, every step I take, I'm going to make mistakes. But you cannot be motivated to serve the Lord from fear that you'll make a mistake. If you want to know where that leads, look at our denomination the past 30 years. Fear is in control. You can't do that. You've got to humbly seek God and say, Lord, lead me. That's what I loved about Brother Kent's report he gave us here Tuesday night, what he gave us when he came to our church here a few months ago, and he gave a report. He said, you know, people have asked, how do you go to Pakistan? And he said, if the Lord told me, the real question is, how couldn't you go to Pakistan? You understand how one is thinking completely carnal and one is thinking completely spiritual. If God has called me to it, I must do it. It makes absolutely no sense not to. Here this man is, he is driven from fear. And I'll close by just saying, notice he says, thou wicked and slothful servant. That's a strong word, isn't it? Isn't wicked a strong word? It's a very strong word. And here's the important part because two things. Number one, God takes the, things that he, the blessings that he gives seriously. You didn't accidentally get what you have. God was purposeful in it. Secondly, we're not talking about stewarding money. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about souls. That's what we're talking about. And so don't you think that if a man and a woman fails to exercise everything God has given them in his service and the net result is the loss of souls. There are some people, and and I don't believe this at all. I'd love to hear if you do. I'd love to hear an explanation to it that think, you know, if, if if I'm called to go witness to somebody and I rebel against the Lord and I don't do it, well, then God will just send somebody else. I don't believe that. He can, he might. But if I believed that, I would never serve the Lord. And things that everything that I was supposed to do would still get taken care of. No, there's real loss suffered by real people that is eternal when we don't steward what God has given us. So it's important. That weight can crush you if you let it. Or trusting the Lord, you can say, Lord, it's all yours. Please employ it as you want. And you can go about joyfully, sometimes fearfully, but joyfully, serving, giving, suffering, extending yourself. Here, he's wicked and he's slothful. Slothful just means lazy. When I was growing up, like like everybody with their siblings, um, you know, there are power words, right? You know a power word. Like smart is a power word. You say somebody's smart, that's a, that's a big word. Somebody's successful, that's a, that's a power word. Well, you know, kids come up with power words to use against their siblings. Right? Well, in our home, one of the power words was the word lazy. Like that was just something that was like, that's low. You don't say that about somebody unless it's true. And there were times when I was being lazy And one of my sisters would use that word to describe me. And it always, from the very beginning, just that word has always bothered me. Because what it means is this. You could have, and you just didn't want to. That's a power word. Wicked and lazy servant. Two things that a servant of God should never be accused of. This morning, came back when it wasn't expected. What a smart, what in some ways a smart thought. Let me just bury it. I give it right back to him. I didn't do, he could literally say this. He had a, a plate of boast. I'm going to close. He had a plate of boast over the other two. He could actually say to him, I never lost on an investment. I never messed up one time. He gave it back to him. Something in his conscience told him it wasn't right. That's why he made the excuses first. The others probably had war stories, don't you think? I lost like $25,000 on this investment. I was so scared. When you first left, like the first three months, I was down two talents. It was terrifying. But I I kept working. And I kept working. And I kept working. And I kept working. I look at the minister school that way a little bit, where the church is invested in that. It's ebbed. It's gotten low at times. But guess what? The church kept working. And kept working. And kept working. And now, what I experienced this week, we've got the other five talents. Well worth it. This morning, I pray that God would allow us to experience the joy in the anticipation of our master's return.